Without further ado, let's say a very, very good morning to Rich Preston, a BBC correspondent joining us via Skype now. Rich, good morning to you. A very good morning to you too and your listeners as well, Amy. And I hope that you had a good weekend. Yes, lovely. And no foul smells drifting in uh, over London, unlike you guys in Cape Town. I'm fascinated by this story. I think once I'm done speaking to you on air, I'll be listening to the rest of the show to find out how this story develops. I tell you, Rich, it is the most bizarre Monday morning. It stinks in Cape Town. It's going to be 36 degrees and it took me nearly two hours in the traffic to get to the studio this morning. What's going on? Oh, that's not pleasant at all. Anyway, let's take a look at news from further abroad and I believe we're going to start with news news from the ICJ. Yes. Now, this is a case that will interest many in South Africa because, of course, it was uh, South Africa that brought the ICJ case against Israel. Well, there's another ICJ case against uh, Israel this week. Um, This is unrelated to uh, what's going on at the moment in Gaza. This is a series of public hearings taking place at the ICJ this week. And the reason these hearings are happening is because back in 2022, the UN General Assembly asked the ICJ to hold these public hearing sessions to allow different parties to give their views on the legal consequences of certain Israeli activity. Now, as I mentioned, this has got nothing to do with Gaza. This is to do with the Israeli occupation of what is legally recognised as Palestinian territory. Now, remember, you've got Israeli settlements uh, being built in certain areas, such as the occupied West Bank, which are considered illegal under international law. Now, there are two questions that different countries are being asked to give opinions on. The first is, what are the legal consequences of the ongoing violation by Israel of the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination because of these prolonged occupations? And the second question is, how do Israel's policies and practices affect the legal status of these occupations? So, two quite you know, they, they sound potentially relatively straightforward, but they're actually quite complex legal questions there. And, you know, specifically, the court will be asking about, you know, the status of the holy city of Jerusalem, for example. So this this is going to be highly emotive stuff. Now, the ICJ is going to hoover up these opinions um, and then it will issue its own legal opinion. Now, that legal opinion is non-binding, but it could still have an impact. And that's because, you know, if the opinion is that on balance, the court doesn't think Israel's doing anything wrong or it's doing very little wrong, just a couple of pointers and bits of advice to, to Israel moving forward, um, then Israel may say, yeah, no problem. Great. We'll do that. And you've, you've basically given us the green light and you've kind of vindicated us, uh, really. And Israel would be in a position where it's justified to continue what it's doing because it can point to this ICJ opinion as justification. If, however, the opinion is that Israel's doing something wrong, it's acting in a way it shouldn't, um, then that puts Israel into a position where it has to stop what it's doing or justify why it might not stop what it's doing. And, And Israel will be under pressure to do as the court advises. It puts the spotlight on Israel a bit more. But it also puts the spotlight on Israel's allies. You know, if the court rules, you know, you're doing something wrong, you need to stop it or there will be consequences. Well, do Israel's allies just kind of 
stand silently by it puts pressure on them as well you know countries like the us uh, the uk to intervene and put that pressure on germany so the optics on this amy are going to be really really important especially off the back of that icj ruling on gaza a few weeks ago mm. israel relies on its allies for support and this could put a lot of pressure on israel and on those nations who support it mm. Rich, let's go to Russia now and arguably one of the biggest international stories over the weekend. The most prominent critic of President Putin, Navalny, of course, dying in imprisonment on Friday. Uh, what are you watching for this from for this story from this week? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right in saying this is the biggest international story at the moment. There was immediate international reaction to this, heavily, heavily critical of Russia and of President Putin directly. What we've not heard much of is the Kremlin itself. In fact, in its 45-minute Friday night uh, newscast, Russian state TV devoted 28 seconds to the news about Alexei Navalny. It was just kind of glossed over. Russians did not hear about this in the same way you and I have been hearing about this. Uh, all we heard was a, a brief statement on Friday and very little else. Scant detail about what happened and nothing from President Putin himself. Uh, you know, world leaders very quick to, to get in there and condemn Russia. Kamala Harris saying Russia is responsible. Ukraine's president saying it's obvious he was killed by Putin. The French president saying free spirits in Russia are sent to the gulag and condemned to death. What we also saw was people in Russia coming out to lay tributes to Mr. Navalny being arrested. Mm. More than 400 people were arrested. Mm. Today, uh, Mr. Navalny's uh, widow, Yulia, uh, will be paying tribute to him uh, at a speech in Brussels. This week, there are a few things we're looking out for. First of all, any comment from President Putin himself, any response to those allegations, or whether we will see some comment, I don't think we're going to see a big speech. I think there might be a, a kind of brushed off uh, statement in response to a question from a reporter, perhaps. Uh, the second will be Mr. Navalny's supporters and himself uh, and, and his family are demanding his body to be returned. It's still being held by Russian authorities. They say they want to carry out their own post-mortem. Post they refused his relatives access to his body for three days running. Uh, of course, the family say that this is being used as a way to cover up what really happened to him. And the third thing is whether there will be anything firm from world leaders on how they plan to hold Russian officials accountable. You know, the EU foreign policy chief said Russia was clearly responsible for his death but it will be hard to find ways to hold the Russian leader to account. And that's because there are, of course, already sanctions on Russia because of Russia's invasion of mm. Ukraine. It is the most sanctioned country in the world. There is already an international arrest warrant out for President Putin because of the war in Ukraine. So when it comes to Mr. Navalny, there's a sense of, well, what more can we do? Yeah, not to trivialize it, but Russia is almost like a defiant teenager. You know, he says, how can you punish them more? <laughs> Absolutely. And, it's, and you know, you're not talking about a country which is, you know, on the periphery here and relies on lots of strong international relations and trade links. You know, Russia has shown that when it comes to wars and conflicts and even diplomatic disputes, it's in it for the long haul. Well, let's stay in that area, Rich. And Russia has Defender of the Fatherland Day coming up. What is that all about? Yeah, this is a public holiday uh, celebrated in Russia, Belarus, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan and Tajikistan. 
It is this Friday and it celebrates Russia's armed forces and the founding of the Red Army. It was originally called Day of the Red Army, then the Day of the Soviet Army. And then as geography and geopolitics changed and the Berlin Wall came down, its name changed and it's now Defender of the Fatherland Day. Uh, One country noticeable by its absence, Ukraine. Uh, they stopped uh, celebrating it in 2014. They they have their own uh, national military memorial day. Um, but in Russia and the other countries that celebrate this, it's a it's a big day. It's all about commemorating the Soviet army. So you'll get you know parades and festivities in various towns and cities. There might even be people giving gifts to serving or former military personnel. Last year there were fireworks in various major cities, and President Putin gave a televised address and laid a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier this year uh, the first of 11 museums are planned to open which are dedicated to fellow countrymen heroes of the special military operation now those of you who follow uh, the news world will know that the phrase special military operation is kremlin speak for the war in ukraine now like lots of countries including the us and uk you know honoring the war dead is hugely symbolic it's a very important day and the same is true in russia and the russian leadership will be working very hard to get that message across. And that's because President Putin needs to send a strong message to his domestic audience that he backs the military, that the military is strong and crucially, subtly serving your country, even if that means dying in action, makes you a hero and you'll be remembered and honoured for years to come. So this is a big deal this week, a big message for President Putin to send out, especially because while Friday is Defender of the Fatherland Day, Saturday is the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Mm, Ironic. Rich, thank you very much for your time this morning, as well as all your information. I hope you have a wonderful week. That's Rich Preston, our colleague at the BBC, bringing us the very...